Well, good morning, everyone. Before we uh, go into our, our pastoral prayer, once again, I want to thank Hyman uh, coming from uh, Open Door, and God bless you and your continued ministry there and the help that you were providing, as well as the witness as well for the gospel. So the Lord continue to bless you there and uh, encourage, obviously, as many of us who can to, to volunteer and offer uh, our service and, and uh, ministry as well. Let's, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for ministries uh, such as Open Door that provide not only opportunities to uh, show hospitality and welcome uh, to those who are not born in this country, to make them feel welcome, to help them understand uh, better how to, uh, the English language and how to then integrate into society. We, we, we see this, Lord God, as a portrayal of the gospel, for we ourselves are strangers and aliens to the ways of the gospel until someone has translated what the gospel means to us. And so we pray for the work of Open Door that you would bless them not only in helping uh, immigrants understand English, but also, Lord God, understand the power of your grace, your mercy, and your great loving kindness. We pray that you would give them wisdom and discernment in this, in this important work. And help us, Father, as well, as we seek to worship you, as we have gathered uh, this day and, and every Sunday as we are able to, to come together as your people, to worship you, uh, to hear, O oh Lord God, from your word in scripture and in song through the exposition of your word, responding in giving. All of these elements, Father, go into a life that is lived with integrity and inspired by your spirit to reflect the very glory of Christ that you have placed within us by faith uh, through trust in Christ. We pray, Lord God, uh, for our nation as there are communities uh, that have been affected by the recent rains, flooding, Lord God, that has uh, filled entire towns and overflowed rivers and destroyed roads. So we pray for the safety of those who are affected most directly by this, for the first responders and rescue people, Lord God, as they do the work of uh, coming to the aid of those affected by these floods. We pray as well, Lord God, for the churches in our area that uh, continue to serve you faithfully uh, and preach the gospel, to reach out to neighbor in the name of Christ. We thank you for the Psalms as they give expression with words that we are not able always to come up with ourselves so that when we are looking for ways to express our longing for you, when we are looking for ways even to express our lament and our, our disappointment and our anger with you, we see in the Psalms these expressions of worship turning to you in, in psalm and song and prayer, that you would respond to us, that you would hear and listen to us. We thank you for the earthiness of the Psalms, that they are not afraid to, to touch on subjects and to go into places of the heart that we may be hesitant to do so because we are afraid of offending you. But Lord, we know that you draw us ever closer to yourself, that even in praise and even in lament, we can experience your presence, know more of your grace and of your mercy and of the great glory and beauty of our Lord Jesus Christ. So help us, Lord God, now to gaze upon your beauty through the reading and the hearing of your word. We thank you that our sins and trespasses are forgiven. And we pray, Lord God, for the strength to walk more and more with integrity and uprightly before you through trust in Christ. This we ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.
Many of you know I've been uh, participating in a uh, clinical pastoral education program through the Morristown Medical Center. So I'm about three quarters of the way through. Uh, Monday will begin week eight, which means there are just four more weeks to go. Uh, <clears throat> so it's been a, a, a very a life-changing experience for me, and, and one of the things that uh, I get to do as a, a chaplain intern, part of, the, part of the program, is to provide spiritual care to patients on the, the cardiac and then the post-op and pre-op floors of the medical center there. And I've gotten to uh, meet with people from all walks of life, from uh, those that have accomplished great things intellectually to those who have worked with their hands their entire lives, as well as those who have simply worked at home and have raised families. Uh, I've met men and women from every walk of life, and I've been able to have the privilege of getting to know them, learning their stories, even sharing with them a prayer in the presence of Christ. One thing I have noticed, that given the, all the diversity of the patients that I have met, the diversity of their experiences and their backgrounds. There is one thing that every patient I have talked to has in common and expresses without any hesitation. They all want to get well, and they all want to go home. They appreciate the care that's provided by the medical staff, the nurses and the doctors who see them. They appreciate the care that is provided by the, the chaplains employed by the hospital. Nevertheless, they all want to go home. They want to sleep in their own bed. They want to cook and eat in their own kitchen. They want to relax in their own living room or sit in their backyard. No matter how comfortable they can be made in the hospital, they all want to get well and they all want to go home. And that desire, the desire to go home, is at the very heart of Psalm 84. If you have your Bible, you see there that there is a superscript after the title, Psalm 84. The superscript tells us some things about the psalm, the kind of psalm that it is. We read that it's to the choir master, it's according to Gittith, and it is a psalm of the sons of Korah. And it's helpful to know what these terms mean as we move into the psalm. So simply put, to the choir master tells us that this psalm is intended to be sung. It's a song of worship. It's a hymn, if you will. It's according to the getith, which is uh, the tune that the psalm is to be sung to. We don't have hymnals here, but if you look at a hymnal, you'll see that at the very bottom of the page on a particular hymn, it'll have the tune, and it'll even have the meter that the hymn is to be sung to. And to the getith is the same thing. It's the, it's the tune and the meter uh, that the psalm is to be sung. And it's authored, we're told, by one of the sons of Korah. Now, if you know anything about uh, the Bible, you know that Korah is one of the tribes of Levi, the priestly tribe. And that during the Exodus, Korah, the, the ancestor of the psalm writer here, Korah led a rebellion against Moses, and as a result of that rebellion, Korah himself was killed, but the scripture says his sons lived. You can see that in Numbers 26. And then later on in Israel's history, according to 1 Chronicles 9, uh, 19, the sons of Korah are appointed to be doorkeepers 
and guardians of the temple, which explains what he says in verse 10. Other sons of Korah in that particular tribe were also appointed as singers and musicians in the temple choir that was founded by King David. You can read about that in 2 Chronicles. And if you are familiar with the Psalms, you've read through the Psalter, you will note that there are at least 12 Psalms that are attributed to the sons of Korah. You can see those in Psalms 42 through 49, Psalm 84, Psalm 85, Psalm 87, and Psalm 88. So that gives us a bit of a background as to the choir master sung to a particular tune, and it's written by someone who is either a doorkeeper or a guardian of the temple or even a singer or a musician. And as I said before, you read the psalm, and the psalm itself is written by a man who is longing for his home. Derek Kidner, in his commentary on this psalm, says that longing is written all over this psalm. The psalmist, in plain English, is homesick. He yearns, especially, he yearns to worship God in the temple. But there's a problem, because in all likelihood, Psalm 84 is written after Jerusalem has been ransacked by the Babylonians and the temple itself destroyed. So the, the temple is no more, and yet there is this yearning, this longing, this desire that Korah has to be back in Jerusalem, back in the temple. He may never have even seen the temple. He may have only heard stories about its beauty, about its magnificence, about the gold that adorned the doors and the brilliance of it as the, the sun reflected off the, the brilliant limestone or the description of the holy place or the most holy place with the rich embroidery and the candlesticks and the, the bread of the presence and the glory of God that resided behind it. All of this may have only been told to him, but it only makes him want to be there all the more. This longing that he has to worship God. In his book, The Reflection on the Psalms, C.S. Lewis describes this longing as a yearning. And then he defines this yearning as what he calls an appetite for God. Lewis writes, I have called this yearning the appetite for God rather than the love of God. Because the love of God too easily suggests the word spiritual in all those negative or restrictive senses which it has unhappily acquired. The appetite for God, writes Lewis, has all the cheerful spontaneity of a natural, even a physical desire. And so Korah's appetite for God, his yearning to worship God, is driven certainly by a, a spiritual desire. It's driven by a religious desire, but it is also driven by a physical desire to be home. If you've never been homesick, you find it, you're going to find it hard to relate to what Korah is expressing here. If you have never been physically desirous of being where it's comfortable, safe, and familiar, this psalm is not going to land on your heart the way that it will on someone who has. This is a man who is longing, who is yearning for his home, so much so that it hurts. This is a man who loves God with all of his heart, all of his mind, all of his soul, and with all of his body. He is motivated to worship God 
by a spiritual and religious and physical desire, not simply to be in God's presence, but to experience God's presence. What makes his appetite for God so remarkable is I've already pointed out that the object at the very heart of the national identity and religious identity and spiritual identity of Israel is no more. If you will, this is Korah post-pandemic. This is Korah saying, I miss being able to gather with God's people in God's presence in God's house. And I, I more than need a spiritual experience to do that. I need more than just a religious experience. I need the physical presence of being with others, worshiping God there. You, I'm sure, have read, you've heard, and uh, learned about just the, the sort of post-pandemic dip in church attendance. People have just become accustomed to just staying apart, worshiping at home or not worshiping at all, or defining worship in ways that the Bible doesn't really legitimize. I'm going to go out on a lake. I'm going to go golfing. I'm going to go do something in nature, or I'm just going to sit in solitude. Those may be fine activities, but don't call them worship in the biblical sense because the sons of Korah, the psalmist here is saying that the worship he craves, the worship he longs for, the worship he yearns for, can only be experienced in the presence of others who are worshiping God, who are themselves yearning and have an appetite for him. This is a man whose passion for God is undimmed by the fact that the place where God dwells is no more. Because the very building, if you will, that gave oxygen to Korah's identity and worship lies suffocated under devastation. And despite that, he says, despite that, the temple may lay in ruins. But his appetite for God is very much alive. And so what does this tell us? Well, it tells us that memory is a powerful thing. It tells us that the, the transmission of the history of one's faith is a powerful thing. It tells us that memory and that passing on of that memory is God's way of motivating his people to worship him, to follow him, to stay faithful to him, to yearn for him. It tells us that God uses memory to help us remember how he provided for us in the past so that we will trust him in the present and then rely on him to provide for us in the future. It tells us that memory is an important aspect of our worship. Just as it is in, in your own family, you pass on traditions. What are you doing? You're passing on memories. Why? Because they're alive. You keep those memories. You honor your, your forefathers. You honor traditions that have kept your family together and have solidified your family's identity. So, too, with our spiritual heritage, we pass on this memory. It's why we gather every Sunday. Because people who have an appetite for God remember what God does, and they remember that God calls us to worship him in spirit and in truth. Listen again to verses 1 through 4. Now, how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts! My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh 
Sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house ever singing your praise. And then Selah is a sort of a musical interlude. It's a moment to just step back, take a breath, and just let those words wash over your soul. Let them sink down the way that a good slice of steak sort of just trickles down and you just say, oh, that's good. Or if you're not into steak, fried tofu. It's just like, oh, yeah. You just say, like, just sort of, let me, let me dwell on that. Let me just feast on those words, that imagery. The temple may lay in ruins, but God, God is not a building, says Korah. He is a spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So here is a man who is an example of someone who is yearning to worship God in spirit and in truth. The irony is, I don't know where Korah wrote this psalm, but my guess is he didn't write it in Jerusalem. He's worshiping outside the place where worship is typically to take place. He is worshiping even though he is separated by distance and time from a building, a structure that represented the very presence of God in Israel's midst. Completely unaware is Korah that right now he is worshiping God in spirit and in truth. And that longing, that yearning drives him to want to be with God's people who worship the same way. And I said before, if you've never been homesick, and I mean really, truly, deep down in a pit of your stomach, homesick that makes you nauseous, you can't really relate to this psalm. I remember when we lived in Canada, there were two holidays, two holidays that reminded us very clearly we were in a different country. The first was Thanksgiving. Canadians celebrate Thanksgiving, but they do it in October, the same weekend that we would celebrate Columbus' birthday, and it never failed to take our family by surprise. Open up the Sunday paper in the middle of September, it's like they're selling turkeys. Why are they selling turkeys in September? Oh, that's right, Thanksgiving is two weeks away. Right? And it's on a Monday, so you have a three-day weekend. That's very civilized. <laughs> but in America, you celebrate Thanksgiving on usually the third or the last Sunday in November. So you all had the four-day weekend. We had to go to work. And the kids had to go to school. And to my everlasting shame, I regret the fact that I did not take our kids out of school on that day and say, kids, we're going to have turkey because this is Thanksgiving Day. Right? We felt homesick. I come home at lunchtime, I turn on the television, you know, there's football on. Football in the middle of the week. It's a work day. No, no, not in America. We were homesick. And then the second one was the 4th of July. And I remember driving along the St. Clair River, looking across the St. Clair River over to Marine City, Michigan. We would actually take the ferry over at times to drive along the, the eastern, the, the Michigan side of the river, and look at all the houses that were decorated for 4th of July. I was like, oh, 
Canada Day has a different feeling altogether. It's July 1st. Canada was formed by the stroke of a pen. America was, was formed out of, by the blood of, of patriots. We felt homesick. That's, that's what Korah is feeling. That's the emotion that he's bringing to this. He longs for God. He yearns for God. And that longing and yearning, just, it just oozes out. You, see, you, you hear it in verse 2. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. Only someone with an appetite for God writes like this. If that doesn't describe or has never described your approach to worship, I don't, I don't know how to inspire you <laughs> to get that sense. This is more than just a spiritual need that he has. This is more than just a religious commitment that he's seeking to keep. This is a physical desire that he needs to satisfy. It's the difference between talking with your beloved over the phone or through Zoom and being in their presence and in their embrace. Being surrounded by loved ones at the dinner table, hearing laughter, sharing memories, telling stories, cleaning up spills, listening to the little ones at the kids' table, telling them to be quiet because they're making too much noise, them telling you to be quiet because you're making too much noise and they can't watch their TV shows. It's that kind of atmosphere that he is longing for, that participation. It's why we gather on Sunday to sing together, to worship together. Because not all of us sing on key or on the same beat. But we're singing, and we're hearing, and we're being reminded through song, and through scripture, and through confession, and through assurance, and through exposition of the word that we have gathered here for not just spiritual reasons, not just religious reasons, but for a physical need to be in God's presence with God's people. This is a man with an appetite for God. He, this is a man, I dare say, who is spiritual and religious. He is spiritual in that he is longing, that his desire is driven by this yearning to experience the joy, the peace, and this, this is the awe of worshiping God. Just a reverential, just jaw-dropping, heart-stopping, eye-popping, ear-splitting awe of being in God's presence. But he's also religious because there's a, a liturgy that goes to the spiritual practice of worshiping God. Because rather than stifling spiritual experience, the religious observance of a liturgy of an order of worship, that allows for a greater depth of spiritual experience. We all have our own liturgy. You're going to get up at a certain time tomorrow, and your day from the moment that alarm sounds is going to follow a specific order. Some of us will shower before we breakfast. Some of us will breakfast without showering. And then we will, we will go through a particular routine. That's a liturgy. And we have a liturgy to our worship that gives structure to our worship. And within that structure, once that structure is learned, then creativity is allowed to breathe and breed and grow. Every musician knows this. Every musician knows that before they can play jazz or before they can improvise, what do you need to learn as a musician? I remember my daughter going through this when she learned to play the piano. 
What do you learn? You get the scales over and over and over again. And once you know the scales, once you know how to play the notes, then you learn how to put the notes together in a song. I can't tell you how many times I heard my little red canoe or chopsticks or, very, or twinkle, twinkle, little star. There isn't a musician alive, or at least a piano player alive, who hasn't played some version of those songs. And then what happens as you get older, as you become more proficient, the liturgy leads to creativity. You begin to improvise. You begin to play with the, the things that are the within the structure. Worship gives you that freedom. Religious observance gives you that freedom to spiritually express creatively worship for God. Korah does it through song, through psalm, through art. Others will do it through coding or writing or making a home for their children, for their husbands and for themselves. Others will do it through art, through painting, through drawing, or through rhetoric. Others will do it through the art of banking and economics. Those are forms of worship. They're not necessarily the, the way that Korah would describe worship of God, but they are forms of worship that honor the creativity that God has placed within us. We don't have a, a formal liturgy here at MGC, but we have an order of service. We start with a call of worship. We follow this with hymns and songs of worship. Then we have a confession Confession of our sins. We receive a word of assurance. Our sins are forgiven. We hear and sometimes we read together scripture. We affirm our faith as we have done. We pray. We hear an exposition of the word. Then we respond to the exposition of the word through giving and tithe and offering. And then we receive a benediction and then are sent forth. That's our liturgy. And within that, we have been able to be creative in our worship. This happens every Sunday. On the first Sunday of the month, the only difference is we partake of the Lord's Supper. Now, why do we do it this way? Why do we worship like that? Why do we celebrate the Lord's Supper? What's going on there? I'll tell you why. Memory. To remember. That's why we confess our sins. That's why we hear words of assurance. Because we forget that God has forgiven us. We forget that our sins have been paid for. We forget that God calls us to walk in integrity. But if we fail to walk in integrity, there is allowance for that. There is forgiveness for that. Because in the Bible, to remember is, requires more than just a mental exercise. In the Bible, to remember is to do something. So on the Lord's uh, day that we take the Lord's Supper, how do we remember? We remember by doing we remember by eating and drinking. And we combine that with words from the scriptures with regarding to the establishment of this meal that we partake. Remembering is a spiritual experience that is entered into by religious practice. And the same is true on those Sundays we don't celebrate the Lord's Supper. <clears throat> Memory is why Korah has an appetite for God. 
He remembers the experience, or at least hearing about the experience of worshiping at the temple. He has been told and may have a memory himself of standing in the presence of God with the gathered community of God's people. He remembers the experience of worshiping God in spirit and truth. He remembers how the liturgy added to his experience of God. Because it's not so much the temple that he misses as what the temple, temple represented, which is the very presence of God, the very community of God's people. And his appetite for God is so overwhelming, he envies even the birds nesting in the temple's nooks and crannies. Even the sparrow, he says, finds a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord. <clears throat> so speaking of creativity, I, I hear this, and I think, I know where Shakespeare got his inspiration from in Romeo and Juliet. Act two, scene two. Romeo sees Juliet standing in her, on her balcony, instantly smitten by her beauty, wishing to be near her. He says, see how she leans her cheek upon her hand. <gasps> Were I a glove upon that hand, that I might touch that cheek. Oh, that I were a swallow that could build my nest in the presence of the Lord, says Korah. Oh, that I could stay there. I could make my home there. Now we know, we translate this into the New Testament, what, what Korah longs for, we experience by faith through relationship with Christ. That we don't have to go to a physical place in order to experience God's presence, His dwelling among us, we know by faith, by keeping the commandments of Christ and of his word, he and the Father and even indeed the Holy Spirit make their home in us. So it's not a matter of going to a physical location, but we can sense and know and dwell in the presence of God right where we are. People with an appetite for God draw near to him, particularly New Testament folk, because they know Jesus is our refuge and our strength, that wherever we are, wherever we go, no matter what happens, God has given us everything we need to follow him, to stay faithful to him, to worship him in spirit and truth. He's given us his word. He's given us his Holy Spirit. He's given us his son. He's given us prayer. He's given us song. He's given us his community. He has given us his very self. People with an appetite for God worship God in spirit and truth, but they also, also have everything they need to worship him. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, he writes in verse 5, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord God of hosts, Hear my prayer, give ear, O God of Jacob, and again, Selah, just let that settle. The benediction that he gives in verse 5 brings to mind something that Paul says in the New Testament, in 2 Corinthians 1, 8 through 10. After telling the Corinthians that God is able to comfort them, 
in any affliction with the same comfort God gave to Paul and his companions. Paul then goes on to describe how they received this comfort. He writes, We do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the death sentence. But, he writes, that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. Korah is separated from the physical location of where he believes God is present. And he finds comfort in remembering that that's the place where God is worshipped, but he also takes great comfort in knowing that God is going to be with him, even as he walks through this thing called the Valley of Baca. Because sometimes when you're following God, when you have a yearning, when you have an appetite for God, you're going to walk through desert barren valleys. King David knew this. He wrote a psalm about it. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, he writes in Psalm 23, 4. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. David knew that God was not only with him as he walked through that valley, but he also knew that God had designed that valley for him and that he had prepared David for that valley. And so it is with us. Whatever dry moments, whatever dry times in our lives that God leads us through, he has prepared them especially for us and he has prepared us especially for them. And David trusted God not just simply to lead him through that valley, but to be with him every step of the way. See, we tend to think, as maybe Korah thought at one point, that when we're in that dry time, when we're in that season of dryness, when we're in that season of barrenness, that somehow it, it's something we have done. We haven't done enough. It may be. There are times when, yes, we fail to honor God as we should, and he allows us to feel a sense of separation. But many times, many times the barren times that we go through are simply a result of having been faithful to God. What do we do then? You do what Korah did. You did what David did. You did what Jesus did. You cry out to God. And you keep walking through that valley. We believe that long before David ever set foot in the valley of the shadow of death, long before Korah and his companions set foot in the valley of Bacah, we believe that Jesus walked every foot, every inch, every millimeter of that valley himself, that he knows every stone, every pebble, every rock. He also knows the pain of going through that valley. We sang about it. He sweat drops of blood. That was a valley he had to go through. And he cast his anxieties, he cast his fears, he cast his very destiny 
upon the greatness and goodness and mercy of God. That's what Korah is telling us as part of worship, is to, in those moments, remember that God is with you in that valley, that it's not the time to rush through the valley, because when you go through a dry season, our tendency as human beings, I don't care what culture we are, our tendency is to get through that thing as quickly as possible. We want to get well and get home. And I've talked to patients the only way they're going to get well is if somebody opens up their chest, takes out a defective valve, and puts a new one in. They don't want to go through it, but they know that's the only way they're going to get well and go home, then let's do it. If the only way that God is going to draw us closer to himself means going through a valley, Korah says, so be it. You are not useless in the valley. You are not worthless in the valley. Your very presence there can become a testimony to the power, the grace, the mercy, and the loving kindness of God to sustain someone in the midst of the most dry and barren time, is what Korah is saying. It's not clear, the scholars will tell you, it's not clear if there is such a place as the Valley of Bacchus. Some think it refers to a balsam tree. Some think it's more a metaphor because the, the translation from Hebrew to English, Bacchus, is Valley of Tears. So the Valley of Tears need not be a physical place. It could be a season of grief. could be a season of anxiety. could be a season of trial and turmoil. could be a season of unrest in your heart, your soul, your mind, in your life, where everything that you've put your hand to suddenly has just fallen apart. And you don't know why. And you're trying your best to walk through that valley. Not every Valley of Tears is found in the barren wilderness. Sometimes it's found in our own home. Sometimes it's found in our own heart. Sometimes it's experienced through illness and death, unemployment, stress, loneliness, anxiety, grief, all forms of abuse. But whether the Valley of Baca is a real place or a metaphor, one thing is clear. At one time or another, every single one of us will experience and walk through the valley of tears. Some of us walk through a valley of tears even to get here this morning. And when you leave this place, you've got to go back into that valley. The good news is, when David frames it, even as Korah frames it, through the valley. You're not meant to live in the valley. You're meant to pass through it. Because there's something on the other side that God is preparing for you. And the only way you can get there, the only way that David can enjoy a table prepared before him in the presence of his enemies is to go through that valley. So whether you walk through a valley to get here this morning or there's a valley awaiting you when you leave here this morning, understand that Jesus is with you every step of the way. He's walked that valley. He knows that pain. He knows that grief. He knows it all. Don't run through the valley. Don't rush through it. That's the temptation. Believe me, I know. I know. Walk. Listen. Learn. Pray. Wait. And then walk. People with an appetite for God had everything they need 
to follow him through that valley because he is everything we need. And then lastly, people with an appetite for God trust him with all of their heart. The psalm concludes, verses 9 through 12, Behold our shield, O God, look on the face of your anointed, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Korah offers a brief prayer for the king. And then once again, he expresses his appetite for God. And he does it in an unusual way. He writes, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. That verse... <laughs> that verse dares us to be honest with ourselves. What's important to you? What are your core principles? How loyal are you to your core beliefs? Can you be bought? They say everyone has their price. What's yours? That's what Korah is getting at when he says, I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. He's saying, I know the temptations to sell out. Remember, he's living in captivity in a pagan nation. Who's going to see? Who's going to know? What if I compromise? No big deal. Worship a pagan god here, a pagan god there. As long as I give a nod to the big guy upstairs, everything's fine. As long as nobody gets hurt, it's a victimless crime. doesn't matter. No one saw me do it. No one's really hurt by this. What are your core principles? And can you be bought? Did God really say? And Korah, in verse 10, puts out a sign that says, I am not for sale. I will not be bought. His heart had no price because his heart had been bought and purchased with the spotless, priceless blood of the God who redeemed him. So our heart has no price, at least in earthly terms, but from God's perspective, the price of our heart the price of our allegiance, the price of our faithfulness, the price of our integrity is the blood of his own dear son. This is why Paul can write in 2 Timothy 1.12, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Like Korah, Everybody wants to, Pastor John referred to this, everybody wants to make an impact. Everybody wants to be an influencer from the, from the lowliest Christian author, preacher, whatever. You just want to have a following. And you will do whatever you can to make that following. And Paul, like Cora, is saying, you know what? It's better to preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten than deny the gospel, be remembered, and eternally forgotten by God. What's at the core of what we believe, says Korah. Whose value, whose worth, whose opinion matters most of all? He'd rather 
be thought well of by God and less of by the world than the other way around. And verse 11 tells us why. Because he says, The Lord God is the sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. This is language that comes right out of God's encounter with Abraham in Genesis 15. You go back to Genesis 15.1 and God speaks to Abraham. Abraham is concerned because he doesn't have an heir. He's concerned because he doesn't see someone coming from his own loins who's going to inherit all that he has and the promises that God has made to him. And going back to Genesis 12 and God tells Abraham, fear not, Abraham. I am your shield and the one who will reward you in great abundance. I don't see it, Lord. You don't have to see it. Just take my word. You will. Because it's in Genesis 15 where Abraham, it says, Abraham believed God. And what did God do? He credited it to him as righteousness. The Lord God is a sun, is a lamp to our feet, a light into our path, light, safety, protection. He's a shield. God guides as he protects, and he protects as he guides. The fact that he withholds no good thing from those who walk with integrity and obediently before him doesn't mean that bad things will never happen to us because they do and they will. It does mean that when they happen, not if, but when, God makes a promise to work all of those things together for our good and his glory. People with an appetite for God may wrestle with that but in the end, they come to the same conclusion that Jesus did in the garden. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And that's, why I think, why the psalm ends with this benediction. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Those who trust in the Lord are blessed, even in the valley. They walk uprightly by trusting in Christ, by walking in faith, by not compromising. They are completely committed to following God no matter where, no matter when, no matter what. They have an appetite and a longing for God. A few years ago, Jill and I watched a movie. I don't know if it's available. probably is available for rent. It's called Ragamuffin. Uh, it's about the life of Rich Mullins. If, if you're not of a certain age, you have no idea who Rich Mullins is. But you have likely sung his songs, particularly if you went to camp. Because if you went to camp somewhere in the late 90s, early 2000s, you must have sung, Our God is an awesome God, he reigns, right? If you, that's him. That's Rich Mullins. Uh, so he did not have an easy life, Rich Mullins, as a Christian artist. Even after becoming a Christian, he still struggled to walk faithfully before God. But through it all, Mullins uh, clung closely and firmly to Christ. And tragically, when he died in 1997 as a result of a car accident, the church lost an important voice. He was an artistic man, but he also spoke with a, a passion, a man who definitely had an appetite for God. I began listening to a lot of Rich Mullins' music after that movie. One of my favorite songs of his, you can find him on Spotify or you know, iTunes. I don't get a commission, by the way. I'm just recommending it. So one of, one of my favorite songs of his is called If I Stand. Uh, the lyrics reveal the heart of a man who does definitely have an appetite, a yearning for God. And, and the, the lyrics are these. And there's more that rises in the morning than the sun. 
and more that shines in the night than just the moon. It's more than just this fire here that keeps me warm and a shelter that is much larger than this room. And there's a loyalty that's deeper than mere sentiments and a music higher than the songs that I can sing. The stuff of earth competes for the allegiance I owe only to the giver of all good things. So if I stand, let me stand on the promise that you will pull me through. And if I fall, let me fall on the grace that first brought me to you. And if I sing, let me sing for the joy that is born in me these songs. And if I weep, let it be as a man who is longing for his home. People with an appetite for God have that longing. They know that deep down home is where the Lord is. And because the Lord is present wherever we are, wherever we go, we are home until we get home. So if we weep along this journey until we get home, let it be as a people who are truly longing for our home. And let us press on toward that home with all the strength, hope, faith, and courage the Lord provides. You think about that. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we readily confess we do not have at all times this yearning but it is our desire, Father, to be faithful to you. It is our desire to worship you, even to have an appetite for, your, for you and for your presence. And so inspire us, O Lord God, to continue longing for you. Be with us in all our trials and tribulations. Be with us in all our joys and happiness. Be with us, be with us, be with us. And lead us safely home, we ask in Jesus' name.